0: is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Lily Lukau.
1: And I'm Zan Dixon. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people.
0: Tonight, we bring you a youth-led intergenerational conversation on public health and racialized disinformation, an informative discussion between GJ Leader for Change Fellow Gianna Ramirez, and the National Field Organizer for Media Justice, Ramsha Sajid.
1: This conversation was part of the Media Justice Network's Fall Political Education Series that examines public health technology and information with a historical and structural lens.
0: That's right. We also bring you our weekly vaccine equity segment and music on media justice, starting with Selling the News by Switchfoot. What is racialized disinformation?
1: Ramsha Saja, the National Field Organizer on Policing and Surveillance at Media Justice, tells us about the definition of racialized disinformation. Ramsha works on campaigns to abolish surveillance, demand accountability from big tech platforms, and resource grassroots activists on how to fight disinformation.
0: 16-year-old GJ Leader for Change fellow, Gianna Ramirez, is also part of this intergenerational conversation. Gianna and Ramsha met this summer at a 2022 Leaders for Change training on disinformation facilitated by Ramsha.
1: The first voice you will hear is that of Dulani National Political Education Manager at Media Justice. We hope you enjoy this conversation.
2: Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Jay Dulani and I'm the National Political Education Manager at Media Justice. I'm speaking to you from Greenfield, Massachusetts, um, which prior to colonization was inhabited by the Pocumtuck people. Uh, today's event is a youth-led intergenerational conversation that unpacks public health and racialized disinformation. We are deeply excited to be hosting this event with Generation Justice Leaders for Change fellow, Gianna Ramirez and Media Justice's own national field organizer on policing and surveillance, Ramsha Sajid. Let me start by sharing a little bit about both Media Justice and Generation Justice and our wonderful speakers today. Uh, Media Justice is a national racial justice organization. We boldly advance racial, economic, and gender justice in a digital age by fighting for just and participatory platforms for expression. We harness community power through the Media Justice Network of more than 70 local organizations, to claim our right to media and technology that keeps us all connected, represented, and free. Generation Justice is a multiracial, multicultural project that trains youth to harness the power of community and raise critical consciousness through leadership development, civic engagement, media production, and narrative shift in the areas that most impact New Mexicans. Racial justice, health, education, early childhood development and economic security. GJ's mission is to inspire youth to become multidimensional leaders who are committed to social transformation. In New Mexico, Generation Justice has been recognized as the premier youth media and leadership group and locally and nationally has been the recipient of numerous awards. Uh, From Generation Justice, we are honored to have Gianna Ramirez with us who is a 16-year-old Nuevo Mexicana Chicana and second-generation Mexican-American. She is a 2022 Leaders for Change fellow. Um, She is from and currently lives on indigenous Tiwa land in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she attends El Dorado High School as a junior. During her time with Generation Justice, Gianna has researched and trained on topics like disinformation, racialized disinformation, misinformation, media ownership, COVID-19 and more. She is one of the fellows who curated the hashtag Protect Your Hood New Mexico campaign on vaccine equity in New Mexico. And joining Gianna is Ramsha Sajid, who is the national field organizer on policing and surveillance with media justice. She works on campaigns to abolish surveillance, demand accountability from big tech platforms, and resource grassroots activists on how to fight disinformation. She has over eight years of experience as an organizer and facilitator. Using both her formal and informal education, she moves through the world with a deep respect for youth and elders. Without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to Gianna,
3: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Jelani, for that amazing introduction. Um, As mentioned, my name is Gianna Ramirez. I use she, her, her pronouns. Um, And I have been with Generation Justice now for about three years. And my current role is as a 2022 Leaders for Change Fellow. Um, I am so excited to be here today, but Um, This summer, we really got to, as part of my fellowship, look at so many various issues, and one of them includes disinformation. Um, Remsha was able to join us and talk to us about what it is, break it down, um, and overall hold conversation with a group of youth as um, we were leaders a part of this program with Generation Justice. However, prior to that, um, I joined Generation Justice three years ago in, gosh, eighth grade, um, really due to always having such an interest in media justice, social justice, how do I make change within my community? And overall just be an agent of change as a youth, but also just someone who others can go to for support. Um, And so I joined Generation Justice to kind of be my outlet to hone in on that, to kind of cultivate it and to learn really what to do with it. Um, And so I'm super thankful for this summer and Rumsha for getting to further that training and pedagogy that we got to just take in, um, but also for being here today. So thank you so much for having me and I will pass it to Rumsha.
4: Thank you, Gianna, and thank you for being here today and so much gratitude to Generation Justice for holding down this space with us. Um, Again, my name is Ramshah Sajid. I'm the National Field Organizer on Policing and Surveillance with Media Justice, and in this conversation today, I'm going to take about 15 minutes to talk about definitions of disinformation, um, talk about the intersection of disinformation and public health specifically, um, and how it affects our lives in general. Um, from there, I'll pass it back to Gianna to talk more in dialogue about racialized disinformation. So to begin, I wanna talk about how this work is a lineage of knowledge. And so deep gratitude and appreciation for people who help shape my understanding of disinformation, but also media justice's a general understanding of disinformation. And so I think it's an essential practice of political education to attribute knowledge to the people who create it. Um, Especially as we're talking about racialized disinformation, I think it's important to give credit to knowledge in order to make it even more credible and thoughtful and rigorous. Um, So big thank yous to this list of people here who have helped shape my thinking and media justice's thinking, such as Aaron Shields, our former national field organizer, with media justice, uh, Dr. Joan Donovan, who leads a project called the Media Manipulation Casebook, um, organizations like Freedom Archives, Center for Study of Political Graphics, First Draft, uh, Brandy Collins-Dexter, and our, one of our partner organizations, Ultraviolet, um, specifically their guide on how to spot racialized disinformation. Um, I also want to thank our media justice team today, so Dulani for their work today and for leading our fall series, Um, To Adrian, DJ, and Danny for technical support today and to thank Generation Justice for um, being here with us, for Gianna for being an amazing interviewer today and for your presence and for Roberta and Barbara for coordinating um, between our organizations today. So from there, I'll dive into the definitions. Um, Before I get into disinformation historically and currently, I want to define what these terms are. So first, misinformation is when information whose inaccuracy is unintentional and spread unknowingly. So an example of misinformation is, say, your aunt reposting that there's a traffic jam on Main Street um, and telling people to avoid Main Street. Uh, She hasn't seen that traffic jam herself or verified that it's true, but she's reposting it to spread awareness about it. Um, And then there's disinformation, which is information that is spread intentionally um, to target a group or an individual, um, a movement or a political party, and it's deliberately false and misleading. Um, In the same context of what I just shared, say that there's like an ice cream truck on Main Street and one group of people want it for, them, for themselves. So they're gonna post on Facebook that there's traffic on Main Street, so everyone avoids the area, but it's actually not true. They just want the area cleared so they have all the ice cream for themselves. Um, the difference in mis- and disinformation in these examples is that the disinformation is being shared for the purpose of self-gain. Um, and the misinformation is spread with good intentions, but ultimately is harming people because it's also spreading false information. And then there's racialized disinformation. Um, and in talking about racial, racialized disinformation, I definitely want to name that no disinformation cannot is not racialized. Like there is, a, there is an important aspect to disinformation and, and understanding how race um, plays a role in all forms of dis- disinformation and often the why, which we'll get to later. But a clear example of racialized disinformation and to define it um, would be that it's campaigns that strategically use fake racial or ethnic identities and or focus on race as a divisive issue to polarize groups. So an example of that could be um, people questioning Bar- former President Barack Obama's birth certificate and saying that because his father is from Kenya, he could not be a citizen or that, his birth certificate is false. And that's just an example of racialized disinformation and the layers of both immigration status and race and ethnicity that are baked into how that disinformation spread. So from here, I wanna turn to some case studies of disinformation. Um, And before I get into that, I wanna pause and let folks know that um, there is a content warning for some of the things I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm gonna be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, Um, Specifically, its effects on black communities, as well as hate crimes against East Asian American communities. So please take care of yourselves. Um, And from there, I'll go on to talk about Canaries in the Coal Mine, which is um, an article written by Brandy Collins Dexter. Um, And in this research, she talks about um, how COVID-19 misinformation affects black communities in particular. Um, And before I begin, I wanna explore the idea of the canary in the coal mine. So starting in the early 20th century, canaries were taken down into mines and acted as a form of technology for miners in the early detection of extremely poisonous and scentless carbon monoxide gas. And so miners knew if the canary with its more sensitive respiratory system stopped singing that it was time to leave the mine immediately. Um, And this metaphor has been used to describe America's relationship to black people on a number of issues. Um, from resource management in Flint um, in in their water crisis to surveillance, to medical abuse, to climate change and more. And so what happens ultimately in black communities sort of rings the alarm for what will happen to broader white and non-black American society. And so that's where the use of canaries in the coal mine as a title um, is useful here because it reverberates to how we see disinformation from the black community shape the rest of American society. And so since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, Brandy's team at Harvard tracked how COVID-19 was being discussed in black communities online. And they used this research framework called ethnography where they tracked how conspiracies and disinformation across message boards and tech platforms um, worked. And so they identified four predominant narratives spreading in black communities in the United States about COVID. Um, such as Black people could not die from COVID-19, the virus was man-made for the purpose of population control, the virus could be contained using herbal remedies, and that 5G radiation from phones was somehow the root cause of COVID-19. And so some of this misinformation appears to be targeted directly at the community by outsiders, while some has grown up organically within specific Black communities. And in this report, she exposes how historical oppression, uh, medical mistrust, lack of access to healthcare and failures by um, internet platforms all shape um, this. these like false narratives online. And this leaves individuals at a great personal risk. So if we're thinking about Black communities and their ability to access information that's true and real, um, that shapes everything. It shapes people's ability to vote, it shapes their ability to be informed on matters that are of really high national importance. Um, And so Brandy and her team conclude this report by recommending specific steps that the press can take to better represent the health realities of Black Americans and to keep them informed. And that tech companies must safeguard accuracy on their platforms, which means clamping down on misinformation and supporting the dissemination of medical information that speak directly to Black communities. In the next example, COVID-19 in East Asian communities in the U.S., And so in this second case study um, of public health and racialized disinformation, I wanna talk about how there was a huge rise in hate crimes and scapegoating against East Asian communities um, early on in the pandemic, especially. So in the spring of 2020, there was a huge rise in racist hate crimes against East Asian people in the US. Um, Civil rights organizations like Chinese for, for Affirmative Action and the Asia Pacific Policy Planning Council logged over 650 reports of bias-based attacks on Asian Americans um, during March 2020. And some of these reports included cases where Asian, people of Asian descent were reported being confused, refused service at grocery stores, um, being spit on, being verbally assaulted, and in some cases, um, physically assaulted as well. And so I want to talk about who shaped the spread of that disinformation. And um, first, I want to talk about how Donald Trump and other U.S. officials have deliberately referred to COVID as the China virus or the Wuhan virus um, and failures of Internet platforms and media putting this into the lexicon by reporting and using images that associate East Asian people with COVID. I also want to highlight that this isn't new. So immigrants and Black people have been similarly blamed for infectious diseases throughout US history. Um, Examples of this include Haitian communities in New York City in the 80s and 90s who were accused of spreading HIV, Um, Jewish immigrants in the 1830s who were accused of spreading tuberculosis. And I want to talk more about how these cases um, serve a larger national narrative and serve empire. And specifically, I wanna talk about how um, it deems people as citizens and non-citizens. And what I mean by that is that when someone is deemed a citizen, they're granted safety and security and access to basic needs, at least sometimes. But when it comes to non-citizens, people get criminalized and therefore people see them as not worthy of protection, um, not worthy to be granted safety and access to basic needs. And so unfortunately, public health disinformation like this still serves the US empire through racism and through harmful narratives about people and their access to public health. Um, And so from here, I I wanna pivot us to talk more about the activity I specifically did with Generation Justice over the summer in their fellowship. And this was a wheel activity that I designed for this group of people because I wanted people to think more about how disinformation shapes their everyday reality. This activity connects systemic forms of racism in public health and puts them into context for people um, to, to make sense of them in their everyday lives. And so this activity talks about the function of disinformation and how it exists on multiple levels We most often think of it on the operational level so often when i think of disinformation i think of radio stations newspapers media outlets Um, i think of social media platforms but we often forget that disinformation is driven by ideas of social regulation so it's driven by patriarchy it's driven by capitalism um, it's driven by white supremacy and it's driven by settler colonialism and so to define um, a couple of those terms, settler colonialism is a is an idea that land in this country was stolen from indigenous people. And that stealing of land came with its own ideas of property and ownership and harming and extracting from the environment. Um, and so all of these ideologies listed here, they are pervasive, they shape our everyday lives. and they work on multiple levels. And so institutionally, we can think about disinformation and how disinformation rooted in patriarchy, capitalism, settler colonialism, um, really functions to purport disinfo in our institutions as well. So for example, police, um, propaganda, and the ways that um, white supremacy and capitalism and conceptions of property are used in how we police or like in schools, how education um, is shaped by different ideals where young people um, in our workshop talked about not being able to fully trust sometimes what they're learning in social studies classes um, because of conceptions of what critical race theory is or books that are banned in schools. Um, These are all examples at the institutional level voting, democracy, media companies, human rights and government that, are, that can be shaped by disinformation and affect how those institutions function. At the community level, um, we can see disinformation show up as vaccine and mask hesitancy. We can see it as the rise of white supremacist groups spreading disinformation online and recruiting people. Uh, we can see it as acting as if the pandemic is over um, or even not seeking medical care because of fear or discomfort with healthcare practices. Um, and interpersonally on a very basic level, disinformation can look like rumors. It can look like reposting things on Facebook that are not true. Um, it can look like hate crimes, like I mentioned earlier. And it can also look like the polarization of issues or gaslighting. So making people feel like their reality is not true. Um, Lastly, at the internal level, when I was doing research, I learned that disinformation can actually lead to altered memories, and so people will think that they remember something a certain way when it actually occurred differently because they are fed disinformation about what happened, or it can also turn into uh, internalized self hate, Um, it can look like anger, denial, anxiety, stress. Um, It can look like questioning one's own intuition when we're faced with so much disinfo and misinfo all the time. And so on the next page, um, this activity is is sort of our reflection space that we did um, with Gianna and the other youth at Generation Justice. And we talked about how disinformation shapes our experiences um, emotionally, spiritually, professionally, or in school. And um, from here, I want to pass it to Gianna to lead us in our dialogue um, about racialized disinfo and and the fellowship that you did this summer. Yeah, thank you so much, Ramsha, for really giving
3: us a refresher and going over that information that um, we were so, so lucky to get over this summer. Um, And so, yeah, as you had mentioned, we did that wheel activity and really were able to I think really reflect on a personal level of how disinformation impacts us, but also get that broader level of how it's broken down on the different levels and um, the way it functions and just impacts every single one of us. Um, And so now just to kind of ask some more questions and think about disinformation on even a deeper level. um, I know this summer you had really talked about how disinformation not only impacts our voices, but it also impacts our government and our democracy. Um, And so I wanted to ask really, what is at stake as a result of disinformation?
4: Sure, so um, in terms of what's at stake with disinformation, um, thank you for that amazing framing of that question, Gianna. I think that, Three things come to mind. I think first, like as you mentioned, our democratic institutions are at stake. So uh, we know that there's rampant disenfranchisement of people and their ability to vote, whether they're people who are formally incarcerated or people who are not citizens. Like I mentioned earlier, we know there's voter suppression in this country. Um, but we we also know that voting and the rise of white supremacy and key events like the insurrection on January sixth. 2021 are examples of how disinformation impact our government and our democracy. Um, Secondly, I think that like related to why we're one of our biggest themes for today, I think the stake is also our health and our well-being. So medical misinformation, disinformation has spread so much in, in many communities. And it's aided by those highest in our government sometimes because they're working with negligent social media platforms that are profitable. Um, this is true when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, mask hesitancy. Um, and it also, I think it's, it's stress, like the stress in our bodies that shows up when we don't know what to trust or what platforms to trust. Um, and then lastly, what I think is at stake would be our movements. So when I think about disinformation, especially on social media platforms, I see the ways hate goes unchecked. And I see the ways that social justice activists are often penalized on, on these platforms. Um, I think our freedom movements are the largest organized defense against uh, this slide into right-wing authoritarianism, and they depend on our ability to access reliable information. We know that tech billionaires and news, prof- news outlets profit from pushing the most negative stuff into our timelines. Um, and I, and I think that's really like a big part of the issue too.
3: Yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for that answer and breaking it down sort of into like three pieces. Um, I feel like that brought a lot of clarity for me. Um, and I, I have to say, I agree. I feel like what really resonated with me as well is that internal stress of when you don't know where to go for information, it impacts us not only health-wise but literally just stressed and not knowing where to go for information Um, and also thinking about how like that lack of just knowing where to go impacts whole movements which is crazy but it's completely happening around us all the time and so thank you so much. Um, I want to now ask you to talk to us a little bit more about racialized disinformation um, and really like how you perceive it but also how do we spot it?
4: Yes. Um, So I think at first, I want to say that no type of disinformation or misinformation is not racialized. And I I mentioned this earlier too, but I really want to like emphasize that, that like nothing can be exempt from our conversations on race, because I think that it's entwined with things. Um, Often we see whiteness as like the standard or what's normal. And that's also rooted in race, right? Like white people should also be racialized. Um, Every type of misinformation or disinformation serves a purpose and cannot be excluded from that conversation on race. Um, I think this question makes me think a lot about a guide that our partners at Ultraviolet created, which is um, about how to spot um, race, racial and gender dis- disinformation. Um, and in that guide outline, they sort of talk about how um, you can look at certain tropes in your, in your news coverage and what they focus on. And so certain tropes like implying that there's a connection between Arab Americans or Muslims with terrorism is a trope that one can, look, one can see in, in racialized disinfo. Or assuming all Latinx people are immigrants or focusing on a Black person's hair or their way of speak when covering a news story on them. Um, using narratives about needing police or that police keep us safe. Um, these are all ways that racialized disinformation plays out and that we can spot it in our media.
3: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, I think it's really important,
4: as you said, to really acknowledge
3: that, like, there, there is no such thing as disinformation that isn't rooted in race and bringing it up as an issue and who impact BIPOC, of course, directly. Um, And so I appreciate that. And also just understanding, you know, how do we spot it? Because, it's it's hard to see specifically like looking at the tropes makes so much sense of pay attention to how they frame things what issues they're focusing on and the connections they make um and so you provided some examples but I know like currently of course, um racialized disinformation is always around us, but I feel like even now it's being heightened. Um, and so, what are some like big or just current examples that you think of that are happening?
4: Um I think currently right now, there's a lot of disinformation about police, um which is also another term for that is propaganda. So, I was talking to a group yesterday about how local news in Chicago is stating that police officers are le- leaving the police force to move to the suburbs or that they're retiring or, or just leaving the force in general, um, when reality, that's not true. The fa- In fact, um, our mayor in Chicago recently released a um, new budget for the city that increased the police budget to almost $2 billion. So they have more than enough resources to be recruiting police officers and retaining them. Um, It's about people making people think that we need police and making people think that police keep us safe when in reality they don't. And so I think a lot of local news outlets um, in many different cities sort of push that narrative um, and are often interconnected with uh, local police. And I think I think that that's a really common um use of racialized disinformation especially as different cities are releasing their budgets for the next year and they want it they want to make it seem like we need um massive police budgets. I
3: think I've seen a lot of that happening even within my own community but I hadn't like thought of it specifically as racialized disinformation. Um so yeah, I think that's think we see it happening everywhere but that's really important to think about it from that lens um and so in the curriculum that you designed for generation justice you also focused really on the systemic um aspects of disinformation and kind of how it breaks down and so I wanted to ask just why was it important for you to really train us in this way which I feel is very unique to this curriculum of breaking down um, the systemic aspects of how disinformation works?
4: Yeah, thanks for this question. Um, I think to start, some context is that I was a youth organizer for about five years and I worked with queer, black and brown youth in a really conservative part of Michigan um, doing political education and organizing led by young people. Um, And in that process, because of the fact that we always had youth come in Um, and question their own experiences of harm, whether it was experiences of harm at school or with police or with doctors or with caregivers. Um, People would always question, like, did this really happen to me? Like, I I feel like something went wrong here. And they would come in and ask some of our adult organizers, like, was this okay? And 99% of the time it wasn't. And I think the reason why... Um, talking about disinformation with young people is so important to me is that I think it's important young people trust their intuition and trust their truth. So if you feel like something's wrong, you can leave a situation. Um, And to me, disinformation feels like a more macro level of how distrust of one's own experience or community members or media can create harm. Um, And so for me, in this process, it was really important to create a connection between Uh, systemic and personal, because I want people to feel like their personal experience is not by coincidence, um, or like the harm they experience is not just by coincidence. Um, History has led us to where we are today, and young people aren't alone in how they're experiencing the institutions in front of them, Um, which I I hope, I have a question for you now, too, which I hope um, is sort of related, which is, uh, how do you see Issues of disinformation and public health show up. Public health show up in your community right now, um, and how do you think it's different right now this fall than it was in previous years? Yeah.
3: So yeah, I mean, I appreciate it because I think thinking about disinformation, it's often easy to think of it as like this broad scale thing that's hard to hone in on, like how do we see it? How is it affecting me and my story and that narrative of like, this is my life and how has disinformation impacted that can be hard to do, Um, which is why I appreciate because I feel like the training that we did this summer has really helped me to acknowledge and think about what's happening in my community currently. Um, And so I think some of the biggest things I've noticed is just often just disinformation about COVID, especially. Um, And I think it's different this fall, um, a little bit more so than it was last year. This is, I feel like, one of the topics that's shifted the most, mainly because um, I think right now, especially within New Mexico, of course, across the country, but even just here within my school community on a smaller level, Um, I see a lot of disinformation about, and just lack of acknowledgement, that the pandemic's very much so still happening. It's impacting people's lives. And also that we're in a very much so uh, recovery period almost of post-pandemic. And um, there's just a lot of disinformation about vaccines. They're still very important. You need to stay updated. Um, And so generally, I feel like COVID has had a lot of disinformation Um, And now it's also spread in the way of it's not spread, if that makes sense, real information, where do you get resources, that's not really in the light anymore. And now it's just kind of the general disinfo of it's not a thing, we don't have to worry about it. Um, But I think also just in general thinking about public health is big issues around behavioral health. Um, I think in general, New Mexico We have a very broken behavioral health system that's been in recovery for quite a few years now. Um, And I think even on my school level, just thinking about wellness and how do we support each other within community and the idea of mutual aid in general. um, I think there's a lot of disinfo and the fact that it's not an issue or there's policing and surveillance are gonna save and gonna solve the problem um, and really, be a way of, um, I don't know, cultivating a healthier New Mexico when that's really, I mean, I think thinking about mutual aid, it's so much more effective and really, you know, taking care of each other by being there for each other, you know, like, it's rooted in community. And so I feel like disinformation has really seeped into how we think about behavioral health here in New Mexico. Um, And so those are two of the biggest things. But I feel like nationally, and here in New Mexico, just the current elections that are happening. There's just a lot of disinformation about the candidates about the issues that are happening. And I think bringing up that stress idea is people don't really know where to go for, for information about where, you know, where do I register to vote, where do I get information about who I should vote for the things that they believe in does it align with me. Um, and so right now, I feel like those are the three biggest things that just come to my brain when thinking about how I see it just functioning. Um, And then of course, like, I feel that I know people in my community feel that my friends, my family. And so on that personal level, um, it really does function on in ways that are oftentimes more negative than they are like, let's just tackle it, let's get into it and fixing the issue. Sometimes we just have to sit and say, all right, this is what we're dealing with. Um, but yeah, I would say those are the biggest things that I think of.
4: That's real. And I'm curious about, I know in your intro, um, we talked about the Protect Our Hoods New Mexico work that you've done. And I'm curious to hear more about like, what you've done since the Generation Justice Fellowship this summer. What has the disinformation training you, led you to do sen- since? Like, I think that really is interwoven with a lot of what you're saying right now, so I would love to hear more. Yeah, so I feel like
3: after this summer we really had that view of okay here's what we're facing, Um, here's what disinformation is, so how do we kind of deal with it, Um, and I think for me personally um, I have now had the doors open for me to have one conversations like this and be involved in discussions and thinking about disinformation, Um, But I'm also um, presenting for FCYO here in New Mexico at Tomaya, which is um, where we are going to gather and Generation Justice, a group of five of us are going to go and present about disinformation, talk about it, what it is, and also how we protect ourselves and just overall media literacy. How do we deal with disinformation in the current day and time? Um, and so that's a new opportunity that's really come as a result of just getting the information and awareness of what it is. Um, but also Generation Justice will be a part of collaborating with other organizations from across the nation to build um, new curriculum about what, how do we teach disinformation, how do we help other youth and just other people curious about it or other people who may not even be aware of it, how do we introduce them to it, and how do we teach it, like, create curriculum on how do we create something that others can use to just spread the world word and give um, awareness to it um so i feel like those are specific things that have just come as a result but also for i think our social media campaign it's really helped us to strategize how we want it to work um and present to the public and so I think those have been some of the biggest things that have really come a result that I've been able to be a part of. But also, as I said, like personally thinking about disinformation and knowing how to even like do research in classes for school. Um, How do I go and find research for different topics? How do I know that it's accurate? Um, Things like that are all having to do with that information that I got this summer.
4: Wow, that's amazing. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that it helped shape that for you. And and really it's such an honor to remain connected with you and Generation Justice in this work. And yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to to think about what are also the hard skills. I think something you said that surprised me was like how much this has helped shape just doing research in general in school or just for things you're curious about. I think that's amazing.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. And I mean, I'm so appreciative as well to you and your curriculum and just media justice in general for being so catered to just finding disinformation and being there as a support to I feel like overall bring um, liberation to us as BIPOC specifically, but of course, everyone and being able to share accurate information. And that I feel does go down to those hard skills of just questioning the media and understanding that it's something important that we have to do. And so that pretty much closes out the questions that I had for you. I don't know if you have any more for me, but that's about it.
4: Yeah, I think we covered a lot today and I I really appreciate just being able to sit down with you. Thank you. Thank you
3: so much. I think now we will pass it to July to close us out.
2: Thank you both so much for that amazing conversation. It was so inspiring to learn about the work that you've been engaged in, Gianna, and that um, Generation Justice has been engaged in. Um, and the curriculum you developed, Ramsha, is so informative, such a helpful framework to think about um, how racialized this impacts us. Um, so thank you, everyone, for, for coming. Um, please follow um, Generation Justice's work and Media Justice's work and keep an eye out for more um, more events coming up related to public health, information, and technology. Thank you all. Have a good night.
1: Thank you, Ramsha and Gianna, for breaking down the intricacies of racialized disinformation and how this is used against us as a people and the length of its impact.
0: Hearing you say, no type of information is exempt from race, was a powerful statement I will remember moving forward. Thank you, Ramsha, And Gianna, thank you for your communication and knowledge. It is so beautiful seeing you involved in this fellowship and amazing interview.
1: And thank you, Dulani and Media Justice for having us be a part of your fall political education series.
0: Coming up next is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by the legendary poet, Gil Scott Heron.
2: You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn, televis televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
0: Welcome back to Generation Justice. It's time to talk about vaccine equity and to help you catch up on COVID-19 information.
1: This is an important reminder that you might qualify for the bivalent booster, better known as the Omicron booster shot.
0: The bivalent booster specifically targets Omicron variants. Without this booster, we aren't protected from the Omicron mutation.
1: Recently, the FDA approved the Omicron specific boosters for kids as young as five years old.
0: But remember, this Omicron bivalent dose is a booster shot, so make sure you get your primary dose to be eligible for the Omicron booster.
1: If you need to get up to date with your vaccination, visit VaccineNM.org and schedule your appointment now.
0: Masks are still shown to reduce the risk of contracting and transmitting COVID-19. Visit CDC.gov for more information on adequate masks, and remember, mask up New Mexico.
1: That's it for our vaccine equity segment. Make sure you're maintaining social distancing protocol and continuing to wear a mask to help keep you and others safe.
0: Now we'll listen to Together by Jack John.
1: There's
2: no combination of words I could put on the back of a postcard. No song that I could sing, but I can try for your heart.
5: This is Barbara Ramirez and I'm your calendar host for this evening. We have some exciting events happening in our community this week. The Presbyterian Community Health CDC Research Vaccine Equity team is excited to announce their upcoming Flu Basics Trusted Messenger trainings. These virtual and interactive webinars are designed for anyone who can promote flu and other vaccination among communities that have been historically excluded. Two webinars will be delivered in English and one will be in Spanish with Presbyterian providers available to answer questions. So when are these Zoom webinars taking place? Well, the first one is this Tuesday, November 15th from 10 to 11:30 a.m. The Spanish webinar will be held on Wednesday, November 16th from 2 to 3 30 p.m. and Thursday, November 17th, from 10 to 11:30 a.m. will be the second webinar in English. For more information, you can email Serena at sortiz24 at phs.org or email Anna at a-r-u-t-i-n-s at phs.org. The second edition of the Oralidad Festival, organized by the Instituto Cervantes Albuquerque, will take place from Friday, November 18 to Saturday, November 19 at the National Hispanic Cultural Center. There will be beautiful poetry, music, workshops, panels, presentations, and so much more. For more information, visit Instituto Cervantes Albuquerque on Facebook. That's it for tonight's calendar
0: we hope you've enjoyed this hour of disinformation education we'd like to thank ramsha sajid and media justice for having us as part of the 2022 media justice fall series
1: Tonight's Hour of Radio is produced by Roberto Rael and Barbara Ramirez with production assistance from me, Zan Dixon, Sanandita Santana, and a special thank you to GJ Leader for Change Fellow, Gianna Ramirez.
0: We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners.
1: Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts.
0: We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlist on Spotify.
1: Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Konama Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health, Infectious Disease Bureau, and Office of School and Adolescent Health
0: as well as the Better Together program, the city of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate.
1: Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last songs of the night include Disinformation by Wailers and En Favor de la Paz by Adame Pamatala. I'm Zan Dixon.
0: And I'm Lily Lukau. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at seven o'clock.
1: Good night, New Mexico. There's
5: a En favor de la paz Hacemos la voz en un canto En favor de la paz Porque con hambre y No se puede encontrar
1: ¿Y cómo
3: va a haber
2: paz en una nación?